The text for today is John chapter 8, 31 through 59. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then you, so you do what you have heard from your father. Our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. If you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not understand, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you you don't listen because you are not from God. And their Jews responded to him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if... If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you claim to be? If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John. Uh, I, was, I was joking, not joking with him earlier. It's fun to have one of your sons uh, read the scripture before you preach. And I think John, I think that makes him smile a little bit, I hope. Spent a few days in our household over the years with, my, with many of his friends and, and then their friends. And, and a lot of times, even for weeks, I remember an ice storm where they stayed for a long time. Uh, but it was good. 
And we, we look back to that. Happy Father's Day. Uh, it is good uh, to be a father. I have some pictures, I think. I want to show a first picture here. Yeah, there you go. These are my kiddos, not my grandkids. Uh, but my grand, these are my kids from 1998. So that's Titus and Morgan and Austin missing his teeth uh, in the, on the side. I, I put that picture up because his oldest daughter just lost her tooth on the front and was losing another one. And it's, it's kind of deja vu all over again as he walks through that. It's interesting with Austin. It was on Father's Day 1990. I was at church camp, junior high week of camp, and no cell phones. And then someone said, hey, you have a phone call from your wife which is usually not a good thing at camp. Um, so that Sunday night she called, and I went to the telephone booth that was there and got in the booth. I said, everything okay? He goes, yeah, I just thought you might want to know that we are going to have another child. And so that was Austin in 1990. Uh, we, I was told that I was going to be a father, which was kind of exciting, also kind of, oh, okay, number three, here we go. Uh, there's a lot of things there, a lot of things going on. So happy Father's Day. Uh, Send that next picture. Uh, this is Morgan. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, but Morgan Weiss is my daughter. She also works on staff with us here. This is her at about, I want to say, three, four, five, uh, with a twinkle in her eye and a strong will in her mind. Um, and, and I wanted to show that picture because I want to tell a story about her. So she's a PK, and so I'm speaking to our staff who have uh, preacher's kids amongst them. And PKs get a bad rap, and rightly so sometimes. I was one of those, and so I can admit to being a preacher's kid who gets a bad rap, a little bit ornery, a little bit uh, incorrigible, if you will. Um, and so she was around the church her whole life. She grew up in this church, and, and I think we had just moved out to this new building, so she might have been a little bit older. Anyway, a story got back to me about Morgan that I knew I had to address, Julie and I needed to address. And it was a, it's a story, and I think probably the person who actually told us was, was not getting her into trouble as much as laughing at her response. So she was running around, I think, the lobby at some point, and someone said, hey, you need to slow down, probably not run in the lobby, and she goes, do you know who my dad is? <laughs> and then made this statement, she goes, he owns this place. <laughs> Talking about the church, and I had to explain to her at a later time, Okay, Daddy works at the church, but he does not own the church building. And you don't, and I try to explain a big word to her, what the word entitlement means, and that you don't have that. Uh, you can't just run around this building as you please. It's not yours. You see, she automatically jumped to a position and assumed that she had a position or even pedigree available to her because of who her dad was. Kids say the darndest things. Some of you know where that comes from, from years ago. Where do they learn this? We know. It's their mom. <laughs> Taking their cues from their mom and their dad is what children do. If you've ever volunteered over in the church building, children's building, or even back here when it was in this lobby, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever driven a van to camp and listen to the story of little junior high girls or elementary girls or boys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Kids say some crazy things. Uh, and this, this, uh, there comes a time, though, right, when what kids learn is filtered, 
So again, I'm not taking the blame away from moms and dads, but there is a filter that goes on where they kind of uh, start to become acclimated to the environment in which they live. So a neighborhood of friends or a school they attend, the activities they're involved in, a teacher they might have or a coach, a family friend, or even their church, and on and on the list goes, right? And when you get to my age and you watch your children grow up and respond to the life and circumstances that they find themselves at, they respond possibly in new ways. Sometimes they're good, sometimes not so much. I think Scripture is full of examples of people uh, in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, of, of, of parents who raised children, and, and especially sons that often rebelled. In 1 Samuel, it's, a, it's an interesting story. There's a, there's a neat thing going on in the, the first book of Samuel. It's the calling of Samuel. But in the middle of that is a guy named Eli, who is the priest chosen by God and was the man of God in that moment. Yet his sons rebelled. The Scriptures tell us in 1 Samuel that he did not respect the Lord, or they did not respect the Lord and treated the Lord's offering with content. So as, as priests serving the offering, they were taking advantage of their position and their pedigree, and God was not happy. And we will find later out in, in, in 1 Samuel that they would die of that sin. You see, blood lineage does not guarantee spiritual lineage. Our text today in, in, in chapter 8 of John is actually the finishing up of what we've been talking about for almost a month now in this conversation, more of a debate as we enter this last section of John 8. Jesus is having with folks over his identity. Many had heard him speak, and now he was performing miracles and healing many people, and those were sick. And some chose to believe in him for those miracles. Some chose to believe in him for his words, many reasons. But the text starts out in verse 32 that it says that there were some that had believed in him. Seems to say that there were some that initially believed in him, but now they didn't believe in him. It makes me want to go back to before this whole conversation that's happening in Jerusalem took place. And I find in John 6, we were reminded probably five weeks ago about a situation where Jesus was giving a very hard teaching, talking about him being the bread of life and that you need to partake in his flesh. And, and it says that many were like confused about these words and, and even to the point of like, this is a hard saying. How can we do that? Even his disciples, those closest to him, were beginning to question these statements. And it tells us from that moment on, many disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Maybe they are a part of the crowd that's now in Jerusalem that he's talking about in verse 31. But in verse 31, this is where we're going to land and, and talk the most in our time together. It's almost a litmus test for discipleship. Jesus says these words, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the statement that spurs on the ensuing debate, which takes this particular audience down a rabbit hole. They will claim that they are sons of God. They will claim that they are not illegitimate children and they will claim that they have never been slaves. Because, you see, we are already free. And if you know your Old Testament, that sounds ironic. Okay, These sons of Abraham claiming that they are free. See, there was a danger when our pedigree and our position cloud our ability to see oneself clearly. And that's what's happening in John chapter 8. Very religious, devout, committed individuals are challenged 
at the very core of who they are and their identity. We are sons of Abraham. We have never been enslaved by anyone. Kind of ironic, I think. Okay, we're talking about the Jewish people here, right? And then I remember, right, we've been talking about them being in Jerusalem for the last couple of weeks. They have spent a good part of the week celebrating a feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles. In case you don't know, the Feast of the Tabernacles has, has to do with praising and giving glory and worship to a God who is good and to a God who is faithful, specifically in their heritage, specifically dealing when God delivered them from Egypt and now they are in the wilderness. And they would set up booths to commemorate yearly in October this time of remembering a God who had brought them out of slavery. And yet they make a statement here. We're not slaves. We're not slaves anymore. And I reckon what they viewed about slavery and the word slavery that, that even is their environment in which they find themselves at that moment celebrating this acknowledgement of, of their once being slaves, they said, no, not slavery, slavery, not capital S slavery. We're talking about little s slavery. Because you're talking about our identity. You're calling us slaves, and we're not slaves. We are sons of Abraham. Their heritage made them blind to what Jesus was telling about their slavery. The issue Jesus brings to light is not an intellectual problem. It's not a problem of who you belong to, what your last name is, what country you're from. It has everything to do with not an intellectual problem, but a spiritual one. It's a sin problem. And so I have two points today. They're pretty quick, and I can make them last really long. Uh, it goes back to my revival days as I looked at this first point and go, wow, sounds like a, a sermon that was preached in this building and there was an invitation and maybe 19 verses of I, just as I am was given and people came to Jesus. Like there's sin in your life. And the truth about it, that hasn't changed over decades or even over centuries. And that's my first point. Sin entangles us and it entangled them. Verse 34, Jesus responds this way. He says, Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The Old Testament has the Torah, and the Jews will still follow that Torah devoutly. They came up with a, with a study guide you may know well about. It. It's called the Mishnah. It's the first oral written tradition known as the Old Torah, recorded in the third century. And so this is a book that Jewish people with families would come together and it would aid them in meeting the requirements of the law. So the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And Judaism taught in the middle of that, there's a feature on conduct. And it's, it's really interesting because in, in the fifth book of that Mishnah, uh, this, this would be a sign that this gives away that you are truly a son of Abraham. And listen to this. A son of Abraham would have a good eye would have a lowly spirit, and would have a humble mind. You would know right away if you ran into a Jewish young man who behaved in this manner that he truly was a son of Abraham by these traits. And yet, I find it fascinating in the middle of a season of worshiping the goodness and faithfulness of God that these traits don't seem to be apparent in this debate. It's not, it seems to be that anything that would portray an attitude in which they find. And that's what sin does. It enslaves us. 
I think it entangles us. It keeps us in bondage. What is it about the human heart in our condition that we can know exactly what to do and we can know the consequences of what we're doing and then we do it over and over and over? I think the grayer my hair gets, the larger the font of my notes needs to be. My concern of, of this sermon is not so much preaching it as much as being able to walk down those steps after knee surgery. <laughs> Why is it as the older I get, the more that rings true? That sin, this bondage of sin, is over and over and over in our lives. It's because we're slaves to sin. And in that enslavement, sin doesn't just become an action, it becomes a destructive power in our lives. James, in his letter, writes these words, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Sin enslaves. It's a bondage. It's a trap. It entices John writes later in one of his letters, 1 John 2, says it this way, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with this lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Sin leads us to rationalize, to excuse, to justify our actions. It will bring out in us pride and entitlement and arrogance and a judgmental spirit, and it never will be satisfied. Jonathan Edwards, known for his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, says it this way, and I, I kind of quote it here, sin turns our hearts into a fire. A fire is, is something that looks beautiful, but a fire in its truthfulness is never satisfied. It is always wanting more. It, it, it consumes. And this is what sin does in our lives. It consumes and it's never satisfied. It's addictive. You see, when we sin with our minds, then sin shrivels our rationality. When, sin with our, when we sin with our hearts, sin shrivels our emotions. And when we sin with our will, it shrivels our self-control. And I'm not telling you something you don't already know, right? Okay, we get sin. We, we know that. We, we know that this is what sin does. We know it. Yet, if we're honest, we're still controlled. We're still being led by sin. We are still being enslaved by it. There seems to be a structure to this, this slavery of sin that we fall into. It sets a trap. It gives us a craving and one that will promise freedom, right? This is what sin does. It promises joy. It promises uh, dopamine, if you will. It just kind of like, wow, that, that sounds inviting. That sounds like something I want to be a part of. You know, I, I just, let me give an example of myself because this is where I find myself all the time. And I'll use one of my tame sins, if you will. I'm embarrassed to share some of them. But maybe you're a lot like me who like to talk back to TV. This is my new pattern of living in the mornings. 
and my wife hates this about me, her response is, you could just turn it off. Well, I'm not going to turn it off because I need to talk to the TV. I need to explain some things that need, those TV people need to know. So I seldom heed her advice. You see, my talking back is, is not so much to shows or a sporting event per se, although I probably do talk back there, but it's more to the news, you know, especially the evening news. Is this you? The news, and I just feel like I need to talk back and solve their problems for them. Anybody with me on this one? And I find that I'm more like the people in the text of John chapter 8. I'm more like a son of Abraham who says, hey, hey, wait a minute, we're not slaves. You know, matter of fact, I, I have this righteous indignation that, you know what, if you just do this, solve our problems. If we just, if we just change that, okay, that's what's wrong with the world right now, it's right that. And my wife just looks at me like, you're talking to no one. Turn off the TV. I wish, and I, I admit to you that I don't turn it off much, but when I have... It's amazing how convicted God does to me in my brokenness and trying to sit back with this posture of, of, of position. And yet I have a position in Christ and I'm using it for all the wrong ways. We're enslaved. We're overtaken by that. You see, sin becomes our master. Sin is allowing my willpower to be destroyed. The very act that promised fulfillment and freedom takes our freedom, and it becomes our master. The Bible goes on to say in this conversation that's turning into a debate, although I would argue that Jesus is still offering salvation, offering himself to them, giving them an invitation to, to be a part of truth, we see this incredible picture that they claim that they are not illegitimate children. He goes, not only are you illegitimate, your son is not Abraham, it's not God. Your son or your father is not Abraham, it's not God. Your father truly is the devil. <laughs> Jesus in his invitation never minces words. You see, when sin entangles, when sin controls, when sin becomes our master, then we look around and go, you know who your father really is? It's Satan. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Right? Happy Father's Day. You know what? I'm so good at detecting sin in other people. I mean, I feel like I have a gift. It's discernment, right? I have this discernment ability. It's so easy to see in other people, right? You know, you know what their problem is. If they would just, oh, their kids behave, you know what? If they would just discipline their children, Right? Of course, I'm just speaking. It's just me. I'm sure it's not you at all. Uh, if I, you know, it's just something that we think that we have. It's, it's I have this incredible problem to do that. You know, how do we get out of it? Right? How do we get out of this this cycle of sin that is consuming us? And as is, as it an addictive choice, we need someone to intervene. We're sin and slaves. We need truth that liberates, truth that frees us. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the news that Jesus is in Jerusalem sharing with people who are believing another way himself. If you will remain in me, then the truth will set you free. 
The truth is mentioned seven times in this text. We, we need to pay attention to that. And I think it's interesting that almost in every instance that truth is mentioned, it is connected with listening and continuing in his word. Continuing in his word. The, the word here, uh, if you will know my words, if you will keep my words, it's the same word here for remain. And I think it's fascinating in John chapter 15, uh, the text that says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you will remain in me, uh, remain in me and, in, and I in you because you can do nothing without me. It's that same idea, the remaining, the, the, the dwelling, the, uh, it's interesting, the tabernacling is the word. The idea of dwelling, remaining, being affixed to God is, is where we will grow. It's where we will see the truth. This is our answer to sin. You see, to remain and to continue in his word is life-giving. John 14, 6 is a well-known passage where Jesus is going to say later in the book of John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He is the truth. His word is true. He is the essence of truth. What he speaks comes from his Father. His words are not his own. He continually says this throughout the text. His explanation in verses 35 and 36 is an opportunity for us to submit to Jesus' plea to move from a slave to a son. I love this. The true son liberates anyone receiving him. Verse 35 and 36 says it this way. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. And then the changing is a statement that he repeats himself again. He says, so if the son sets you free, you really will be free. This identity that he gives us. When we see the truth of who Jesus is, we can live in the identity of being his children. The backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles is interesting. I, I, I did way too many deep dives. And when I do too many deep dives, it's, it's, I've got to bring it all together, right? And so I pick and choose what I want to tell you, what God seems to be leading me to tell you. This one I just couldn't miss. You see, in this Feast of Tabernacles that was taking place in October, middle of October, just five days before, uh, even today in Jewish tradition, is, is a famous day called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And it's interesting, when you do the study, what's the purpose of Yom Kippur, this day of atonement? What, 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 is, what do they do on this day as they celebrate as Jewish people? Well, it's a time for sacrifice to make atonement for their personal sin. The day was spent in fasting and intensive prayer with a time, an ongoing time of repentance and confession. This was the holiest day of all the Jewish days. So five days earlier, they, they spent time fasting, getting on their knees, repenting, crying out to God, God, please forgive us. Please take this sin. Take this yoke off us. We are your children, Father. Allow us to be your children. This was their prayer. This was their ongoing process. And then a week later, we find these sons of Abraham in a debate with Jesus, the Son of God. It's almost as if they had forgotten what they were like. They went from a time of repentance and confession 
and then a time where they were blinded in their own pride that they couldn't see the invitation of Jesus to take their sin for good. You see, I find it incredible until I take a look at my life, and, and honestly, I hope as we take a look at our own lives, and to realize that I'm guilty of claiming my allegiance to God, Creator, and Jesus Christ as Lord, and then walk out of this place and led by my own evil desires and my own brokenness. I think a correlating text of Scripture is found in Romans. Romans 6, if you have time, just go and read it, and then just mark it down and just come back to it. It just speaks to this contest that we're talking about. I'm going to read verses 16 through 22. It says it this way. It says, Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? There's two choices. But thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you have become enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to the greater uh, lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. The crowd continues to come after Jesus and his statement, saying he has demons, he's, he's mocking uh, us, and they mocked him about his claims, about how Abraham had long awaited to see the day and was rejoicing and was glad. And it, it, this section of scripture ends with this incredible picture of Jesus saying words that would ultimately lead him to his death, but the very words of God, which are the truth that sets us free. And he said this statement, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. You see, the crowd that was listening probably didn't understand everything that Jesus was saying, and they missed the point because of their pride and their position and their pedigree. They didn't miss what he said in that moment. Every Jewish person in the crowd knew exactly who he was quoting. Exodus chapter 3. The picture is Moses on a mountain. He sees a burning bush, right? He sees a burning bush, immediately hears a voice say, take off your shoes, this is holy ground, and he does. And he comes into the presence of God in that moment. And we have this conversation with God, Moses does. At the very end of it, Moses is kind of like, I don't know what to do. He's, he's calling him to go, and I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to deliver the people, and I will lead you to do that. And finally, Moses says, but they're just not going to let me let them go. I mean, just me coming in is not going to say, okay, we'll let thousands upon thousands of people leave. And he says, what should I do? Who should I say is sending me? And, and we hear these incredible words in, in Exodus 3. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. That's what you need to tell them. This is who Jesus is quoting. This is who Jesus is claiming in this moment, that I am the one. 
John is just littered with I am statements, right? It's just a beautiful picture of, of John just developing for us this picture of what Jesus came to do. The great I am on behalf of his father, the one who created the world, the one who is providing and offering this invitation will be the one who will go to a cross. See, when Moses received those words, he was commanded to take his shoes off, right? Just the humility at the voice of God. It just, it just points to a posture that we need to have, doesn't it? A posture of humility, a posture of this is a holy place, maybe our shoes need to come off. I, I even think of in the garden, right? In the garden where they came to arrest Jesus. And I love the recorded picture in that moment. It says, I am the one you're looking for. It tells us that everybody just fell to the ground. <laughs> you see, whether you choose him or don't choose him, there will be a reckoning and there will be a posture. So what is our posture as we come to hear God's word? What is our posture as we come to worship him with song? What is our posture as we come to remember his life giving in our place for our sin? Probably one of my most favorite passages, the first sermon I ever preached, Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our posture should be like our Savior, a desire to offer himself humbly for us. May we have that posture of humility, asking God to liberate us from our sin so that we may live in the truth of his words. As we close, I want us to reflect as we go to a time of communion. And here's one of the things I had to practice, that I could bend down and get it, and I can. That's another thing my wife hates, just the noises that I'm making anymore. But I want us to ask a couple of questions as we think about sin. And as we ponder and we remember what Jesus has done, actually, this is our time of atonement, if you will. This is our Yom Kippur. This is our moment to reflect and confess what God has done. What is the sin that entangles you today? Is it an attitude? Is it just flat out naming something that you need to give up that's holding you in bondage? See, this is the time when we trust in a God, where our posture is with humility, and we say, God, you're the only one that can take this from me. And I seek you to remove my pride, to remove this attitude, this arrogance, to remove this sin, this, this division in my family, this division at work. What's that sin for you? What does God need to take from your heart? And do you trust that he can remove it? And the second question is how 
can I right now live in the truth of the resurrection, living alive to God, living from an identity as a son and a daughter of his? How can I begin to live in that? Let's reflect as we remember the body that was broken for us, the atonement that Jesus came to do. As our God gave his son, it was broken so that our sin might be removed. And his blood was shed on our behalf to remove our sin. May we remember well.